1786, Robert Burns was plowing a field. I read about this and I thought, how ironic, because in 2012, Rick Crawford was uh, mowing his backyard. (laughs) And a similar thing happened to me that happened to Robert Burns. I'm mowing along and all of a sudden, in front of the mower, I see like five mice scurry in all directions. And I realized I had just taken out their home. Like, yeah! (laughs) Go over to Ron Barbs. (laughs) Robert Burns was out plowing a field when he accidentally upturned and destroyed a mouse's nest. Now, that doesn't seem like a very consequential event, but he wrote a poem about it as an apology to the mouse. And the poem is called, in brief, To a Mouse, which I think is a brilliant title. And one stanza of the poem says this. It has a line in it that you have heard before. But mousy, thou art no thy lane. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes, O mice and men, gang aft a glay, which means go off to rye, and leave us not but grief and pain for promised joy. And of course, that same line was used in John Steinbeck's 1937 novel, Of Mice and Men. The best laid schemes of mice and men. Best laid plans of mice and men so often go awry. It's absolutely true. In fact, that is the standard phrase for thinking we can actually make any plans with any kind of certainty. And you know this. You all have made plans in your lives before and something happens that makes you take a left turn or a right turn and you never get around to doing the thing that you thought you were going to do. Sometimes that happens on a daily basis. Sometimes it's a big life event where you're planning this road and everything's set and you know where you're going and suddenly you're off in some completely different direction. You had no idea it was coming. No idea this would happen. And of course, James writes in James 4.13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, do, we will live and we will also do this or that. If the Lord wills. Lord willing, We're going to build a building. Lord willing, we'll be back here next Sunday morning talking about celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Lord willing, we'll make it to lunch today. I mean, you have no idea. And so we live by that standard. Lord willing. The Bridge Christian Fellowship began with very, very little by way of planning. At least by way of human planning. I mean, it began with a phone call. They called up Barb. Hey, um, heard you were praying, and I know you don't know me, but <laughs> that's how it started. We met with Rod and Barb in their living room. Their kids were there, Cheryl and I, and Mike and Leslie Freeman, and we sat down and began to talk about what was going on, what was God doing here, and there was so little in the way of actual plans. I couldn't answer any questions based on well, what's your design for this. Oh. You know, the real miracle is that Rod and Barb sat there and actually welcomed me into their living room that Wednesday night for our first Bible study. Because I had no idea. They had no idea. All we shared was an absolute certainty that God was doing something. And the something was what we didn't know. Something was going on. 
We have this one certainty, and it's the same certainty that we hold today for this fellowship. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'll build my church. That was so relieving for me, so freeing. I thought, well, if you'll build your church, I don't have to worry about it. People say, well, you're still in that barn nine and a half years. Well, what are you going to do? It's not my problem. It's His. I will build my church. And so He does. Now, along the way, as we've already talked about this morning, we have made many plans. (laughs) We've considered plans. We've compared plans. We've submitted plans. We've revised plans. We've resubmitted plans. And we have planned and planned and planned. And I think David knew something about plans. In fact, keep your finger there in Jeremiah 29 and turn back to 1 Chronicles 28. 1 Chronicles 28. And you perhaps know the story that David had it in his heart to build the Lord a temple, a house. And in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 11... We're told that David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple. Its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God, and for the storehouses of the dedicated things, and also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites. I mean, David had thought this through. And the Spirit had been at work in the heart of David to show him these plans, to give him these plans, to lay out a standard. But David wasn't going to build this temple. You Bible students know David had blood on his hands. He was a warrior king as much as a shepherd king, and so he wasn't going to be the one who built the temple. God said, my temple will be built by a man of peace. So I want your son, Shlomo, to build it. (laughs) Shalom. Shaloman. Solomon, the man of peace. And so Solomon would build the temple. Down in verse 19 of 1 Chronicles 28. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by His hand upon me all the details of this pattern. And then David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and act. Well, I think we could take that as a verse for us right now. Be strong, fellowship. Be courageous and act on whatever the Lord is putting in your heart to do with regards to our fellowship and this building. Be strong, be courageous, and act. Do not fear, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you, until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And so Solomon built that temple. According to exact specification. And it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. People came from far and near to look at this temple to the Lord God in Jerusalem. A stunning edifice. And along the way, I believe Solomon learned a thing or two. He jotted it down for us. Proverbs 19.21 He said, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. I had Dad's plans, but this thing came up because God saw to it. God saw fit to do it. Psalm 127 verse 1 Unless the Lord builds the house, Solomon wrote, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. But you know something of the history of the temple, don't you? For all the best laid plans of mice and men, of kings and builders, that glorious temple of Solomon would stand for 374 years and be done. 374 years. 
Even as God instructed Jeremiah to send a letter to the exiles who were already in Babylon, the temple was in its final countdown. The temple was seeing its last days on planet earth. Did the plans of man fail? Yes, they did. But not the plans of God. The temple, all that work, all the blueprints, all the time, all the architecture, Paul, 374 years, gone. Wiped out, raised to the ground, burned to nothing. And in the midst of that, as that was coming around the turn, God said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. I know the plans I have for you. The word plans in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It's mahashabah. I know the mahashabah I have for you. It's bigger than plans. You know, when I read the word plans, I think of blueprints. Or I think of an outline or perhaps a set of goals that God might have for my life. No, no. The word plans, mahashabah, is thinking about. I know the thoughts, some translations say. I have for you. It's it's musing. It is dynamic thinking. It is creative thinking. It's the kind of thinking God does, which is never static. It never stops. When God created the world, do you think He was done at that point? Yeah, He rested on the seventh day, but at that point, did you sit back and go, whew, I'm worn out, no more thinking. God is always creative, always thinking. He's always going forward. And his Mahashabah, his planning, it's much bigger than planning. It's his entire thinking. God sends words to the exiles already in Babylon and he says, I want you to know I'm thinking about you. I know my thoughts toward you. I know what I'm thinking. David said in Psalm 8 verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for Him. Truly, it's one of the most outrageous thoughts in all of the Scripture. That, if you want to take notes, God is mindful of me. He is mindful of me. That God has thoughts about me. Thoughts about you. And what's ironic to me is in this world, typically when tragedy strikes, a favorite question, especially from those who are more skeptical, is where is God in all this? And the shootings in Newtown, where was God in all of that? I think a more appropriate question would be, why should He care? (laughs) Why should the Master of the Universe, the King of all things, the grand and glorious Creator, give a rip about you? Puny little you. No offense. Puny little me. Of all the billions of people who have walked the face of this earth, how insignificant is just one Just two. And yet God says, I know the thoughts that I have for you. I am thinking about you. How arrogant of man to think that we are so important, so so in the midst of everything, so centered, the world centered on me, to say, God should be thinking about me. No, He shouldn't. In fact, if you were God, if I were God, guess what we wouldn't be thinking about? All the little puny peons everywhere else. How much thought do you put into the humanity on the face of the earth right now? How many of you thought last week about one of the parents of the kids shot at Newtown? 
Anyone? I mean, unless it comes up in the news, do you even consider what someone else on the other side of our country is going through? I don't. I can barely keep up with my own family. (laughs) Having thoughts for them. I realize two weeks have gone by and I haven't talked to my son, Corey, down in Redmond. I've got to call the boy. And God says, I know the thoughts that I have for you. God is mindful to me. And when David says, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him, listen to the context of this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you think of him? David looking up into the heavens sees all the planets flung into their orbits by the hand of God. And says, I look at this and I cannot even imagine why you would take a single thought of me. And yet, not only is God thinking about me, thinking about you, He is planning for you. He's planning for you. Oh, Rick, you got to be honest. Jeremiah 29.11 really isn't for us. There's a letter from God to the exiles. I'm thinking about you. He was thinking about them. So how can you parlay that into thinking about me? All right, you got me on that. The thoughts and plans he has here are for Israel. But I have no problem co-opting this promise. I have no problem applying it to me. Well, why, Rick? Because of what Jesus said in John 14, verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where you are, where I am, there you may be also. His plans are bigger than we think. And yes, He is thinking about you. And yes, you are on God's heart. And yes, you do matter to Him. Because while we may be tiny and seemingly insignificant, His plans are so big that they are open to include every single breathing, living person. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. Plans for welfare. Thoughts of peace, literally. Welfare there is the word shalom. I have peace in mind for you. The Hebrew understanding of the word peace is far bigger than just no war. It means complete and total peace. It's peace of mind. It's peace of body. It is peace of spirit. It's the whole deal. That's the Jewish mindset. And that's what God says. I have thoughts of complete and total wholeness for you. Peace. These are the thoughts that I have for you, declares the Lord. We've got to get the view of Jeremiah 29.11 out of the short term temporal, limited realm of personal goals, business success, and self-fulfillment. It's bigger than that. It's far bigger than perhaps having a good day tomorrow or next week or next year. Having a good year. God says, no, I have plans for shalom and that affects every aspect of who you are. He says, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, he says. And I will be found by you. That's the future he wants. That's the shalom that he offers. Not just for Israel, but for all of us. Not only is God mindful of you, but secondly, God desires a whole-hearted people. 
A wholehearted people. Not the half-hearted approach that is so typical of mankind. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I believe a large part of the reason why God allows this sin-sick world to spin on is that people might get fed up with it and hunger after Him. Why He allows tragedy to strike, why He allows man's sinful choices to so negatively impact man is so that we will have enough of the stuffing of the empty calories of the sin of this world and truly desire to feast upon Him. I don't know if I've shared this recently, but my favorite food a year ago was what? Pop tarts. <laughs> did I talk about it that much? I guess I did. Wow. See, it was an addiction. I've been off Pop Tarts now going on 300 and no. Um, my favorite food now, you know what I look forward to eating at the end of every day? My evening snack? Apples and cheese. Thank you very much. <laughs> I crave a good apple. I really do. And Cheryl and I just changed our eating habits in such a way that, man, I, I look forward to having an apple. I had a pack of Pop-Tarts two weeks ago. Cheryl, on a whim, brought that filth back into the house. And out of respect for her, I ate them. They weren't very good. They just really weren't. And it's like that with sin. God says, I'll let you fill up on it all you want until you're sick of it. I'm going to send you to Babylon, He says to Israel, until you're sick and tired of idolatry. And then when you look at Me, perhaps you'll see how wholesome and fresh and sweet and true I really am. And so here we are in this world and all this is going on and I find myself getting heart sick in this world. Do you? We look around at all that's happening. Remember again, that's why God sent His people into Babylon back in Jeremiah 16. Look back there, verse 12. Jeremiah 16, 12. He says, You too have done evil more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor. Skip ahead to Jeremiah 24. Jeremiah 24, verse 6, and then he says this, For I will set my eyes on them, that is these same people he hurled out of the land, I'll set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. And they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. God is not into half-hearted believers. He wants your whole heart. God desires a whole-hearted people. So He sent His people into Babylon to heal them of idolatry, to heal them of half-hearted worship. And it worked! At least at first. If you read the stories of the people's return, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, 
Almost 50,000 Jews returned with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Would that it had been all of them. It wasn't. But 50,000 came back, passionate for the Lord. Ezra comes and he brought in a, a second wave. Nehemiah came and brought in a third wave of exiles returning to the land with a whole heart for the Lord. By the way, note that. I had never seen that before. God took the people out in three waves. God brought the people back into the land in three waves as they returned to the land. Three is a significant number. Jesus was dead for three days. And on the third day, He rose again. And there's something about that number three that reminds us of resurrection, that reminds us of life, that reminds us of hope and new opportunity. And God brings the people back, three waves out, three waves in. God is mindful of man. And God desires a wholehearted people. But, you might say, I know the history of Israel. I know in 500 more years they would reject the visitation of their Messiah Jesus. And they did. And I know that the second temple, for all its magnificent plans and Herodian renovation, I know that that temple would fall. And that's true. God's plans are bigger still. Verse 14 of Jeremiah 29, I will be found by you declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And in verse 14, he is no longer talking about Babylon. He's talking about the whole world. He's talking about all of Israel He is talking about the entire nearly 2,000 years of Jewish diaspora, dispersion. As the Jewish people were driven out of the land in every direction, all over the face of the planet, and God says, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to do this. Look again at verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And this is the last thing I want you to get. God is mindful of you. God desires a wholehearted people. But the whole promise of this letter speaks of finality. Not the personal all-important plans on our smartphone calendars. But the big picture, the big plan, I know the plans I have for you, the thoughts, and they are huge, and they are beyond expectation. Number three, God promises a hopeful end. He promises a hopeful end. The two words here, future and hope, the word future there is akarit in the Hebrew, and it doesn't just mean future. It means end. Latter, last, a final hope, he says. And the word hope, I just love in the Hebrew, it's tikvah. And tikvah means an expectation for a certain outcome. And tikvah, ha-tikvah, is Israel's national anthem. Here are the words. 
As long as the Jewish spirit is yearning deep in the heart, with eyes turned toward the east, looking toward Zion, then our hope, the 2,000 year old hope, will not be lost. To be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. Gang, Jeremiah 29.11 is that promise. The promise of the hope of Israel, a final end, a future end, an expected end. A glorious, epic promise that in the last days, all's well that ends well for Israel. It's a glorious finish to the whole story. It's a big ending. It's the perfect ending. Their hope and their future. But it's ours too. It's our hope. It is our future. What, to go to Israel? I'm planning on going this year. Good. But it's our hope and our future because of what Jesus said. I'd like you to turn over to John 19 and we'll end there. John 19. Brian mentioned it's Palm Sunday. The day where we commemorate the week before Jesus was crucified, the week that He entered into Jerusalem. People laid down clothing and palm branches and they said, Hosanna. And within one week of that glorious welcome into the land, He was into the city. He was rejected. John 19, verse 28. After this, listen, after this, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. To fulfill the Scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine, it was actually kind of a a bitter vinegar drink, was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, brought it up to his mouth, and therefore, when he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! In the Greek, te telestai. Te telestai. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And in that moment, gang, the expected end of Israel was sealed. It is finished. In that moment, it was all over. The glorious promise for Israel would come to pass, could not be stopped. The glorious expected end not only for Israel, but for all who believe in Christ, the Messiah. For all who follow Jesus, we have an expected end. And what's marvelous about that for me is that ending is so much bigger than any success in my life. Than anything I'm looking forward to right now. What are you looking forward to right now more than anything else? What's the big thing out there looming on the horizon that, boy, when this gets... Is it building the building? That's not what I'm looking forward to. That's a stop along the way. And as I prayed earlier, a stop we may not even get to. Hopefully, we won't even need that building because we already will have gone home. But that being the case, there are people right now who have no hope, who have no hopeful end. They're not looking forward to anything but the next experience or event here in their life Temporal lives. Jesus said, it is finished. And the promise was set 
in stone. And of course, three days later, a stone was rolled away, and the proof of life came walking up out of the grave. But we'll save that for next week. Let's stand up together. I want to pray one more time, and it's not for buildings. It's not for plans. It's for what's truly on God's heart for you and for me, and that is salvation. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ to be saved, then I invite you this morning while I pray to come up front and have a seat. And if you have not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'm telling you, as you have heard over and over, right now you have no expected end. It's all up for grabs. Jesus doesn't want you wondering. He wants you to know that your salvation is secure in Him. And you can have that salvation by believing in Him and trusting in Him this morning. Would you do so if you haven't? I invite you to. Come forward while we pray. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, our Father in Heaven, we pray that we might continue to be... No, Lord, let me retract that. I pray that we might be the fellowship to which You have called us in ways we have never yet experienced. That beyond previous expectations, beyond previous experiences, beyond previous plans, Father, we might see Your Holy Spirit at work in this church like never before. We pray, Lord Jesus, You'll be changing hearts and attracting people to hear the message of the Gospel of truth. And that is the saving Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, Your death on the cross, dying for a people who didn't deserve it, and raising to life as a promise for anyone who would believe in You. Father, I pray You would use us. You would send us out of here. You would spread out from this place. You, that we would, Lord, enlarge what we're doing here with our eyes on Jesus and the Kingdom. I pray Your blessing on the fellowship this morning and Your blessing on anyone whose heart might be on the line today, whether it's this service or the next service, Father. We pray that Your Spirit would attract and draw and move. And Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for blessing us with this day. Now keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on the kingdom. To your glory, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.